we remain standing for the reading of the gospel, the 13th chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 8. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? What will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Our children will be dismissed to their services. Don't you wish you could run in here too? (laughs) I would love to start this sermon with everybody getting up and going and touching one of the walls. Don't have to do that. But imagine touching those stones. Feel how solid they are. And notice how you put one on top of the other and you build a wall. A wall that makes this beautiful place this sacred place possible. Now imagine yourself in the first century. A foreign power has taken you over and has been that way now for generations, but you still chafe under their rule, and you long nothing more than to be free. And you look for somebody, somebody to lead, somebody to step out and call people together and bring freedom to your people. And you think you found him. And you seem to hang on his every word. And then one day in that magnificent place, he points somebody out. A woman who in that culture has no clout. And she's poor. Nobody wants to be poor. And she's a widow and nobody envies the grieving. And she empties her coin purse in the temple treasury. And the sound of her offering is embarrassing. It's more like she dumped some lint in the offering plate. Two pennies. Two lousy pennies. You don't build this with two pennies. How can he say she's showing us the way? How can Jesus praise her as an example of faith and generosity and courage? Yeah, I know. He said because she gave all she had. But she didn't have anything. And maybe you really want to follow Jesus, but you don't want to be poor, certainly not vulnerable. You want to be a proud champion of your people, not ashamed by your poverty and risking everything, not what you signed up for. 
and you follow Jesus outside and your line of sight is drawn to these, these stones and they're huge. And you say, Jesus, hey, let's come back down to earth here. Let's get down to the concrete. Look at the stones. Not at that widow, but the stones, how solid. And this, this temple, how magnificent. Makes you feel big and proud. Caroline Lewis wrote, how quickly and easily we find ourselves mesmerized by a greatness beyond our grasp. She calls it the idolatry of grandeur. You see, the stones are about power. They're about wealth and achievement, about winning. And the first readers of Mark's gospel would have understood that, and they would have liked it. Because for them, their daily bread was fear and anxiety. Their constant companion was this sense that a Roman soldier could run them through with a sword at any time. And you can't pierce stone with a sword. And walls make for safety. And then Jesus says, these stones and buildings will not last. If you're looking for life, you're looking in the wrong direction. Oh, they lived in great fear with the rancid temptation to hate always in the air like smoke from a wildfire. And you know that sounds all too familiar. I want to read a statement from a political strategist. And in your mind, you just imagine which political party this represents. Please don't say it out loud. You'll spoil it for everybody else. This strategist said, tell people they need to be afraid. Give them someone to hate, and they'll follow you. Tell them to be afraid. Give them someone to hate, and they'll follow you. Actually, that's a statement from Hermann Goring in the 1930s, an architect of the Nazi takeover of Germany one who facilitated all kinds of murderous hatred. In our day, Nancy Gibbs wrote these words after the synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh. Hate, among all our base instincts, is the most distinctly human. In animals, violence and venom are tools of survival. In humans, of supremacy. Small, scared people hate. Self-hating people hate. Bullied and betrayed people hate. As though hate will make them large and safe and strong. When we live in fear, whether it's an emotional fear or political or economic or racial, whatever makes us vulnerable, Grandeur promises power and prestige and safety. And the fear tempts us to hatred as the way to get there. And Jesus says we're looking in the wrong direction. He tells them, don't be led astray. Many will come and pretend to be me. Many will claim the validation of faith while they're peddling hate. 
Many will claim goodness, but they'll live by greed and care only for their own prosperity. My oldest daughter sent me a link to a, an article this week. It was a spoof of politicians and religion. The character actor plays the role of Jesus, saying things in the New Testament and adding a twist at the end. And one of those, the character says, shall I sell my soul for the world? And then he said, of course, it's a great deal. One little soul, you get everything. Except we know all too well there are those who live that way. In the previous chapter in Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke of those who like to dress like a GQ model, who love their celebrity status, who deliver long prayers for the appearance ache, and yet who would seize what little the most vulnerable have. And Mark's gospel has stories of the blind and the mentally ill and the diseased who are all pushed to the fringe of society where they can only cry for mercy and hope that someone will hear them. Many come in my name. We're infatuated with grandeur. Before I became a hospice chaplain, I was 20 years as a pastor, and during those 20 years, I attended a lot of convention meetings, state and national, and I heard a lot of nominating speeches of people that we thought should be leaders and should lead us. And it was always about numbers, it was baptisms, buildings, budgets. I never heard in any nominating speech anywhere that this person stood arm in arm with African Americans on the Selma Bridge. The largest and the biggest became rallying points. Indeed, they became mission statements. And the fear that began to develop was that somebody didn't believe all the right things. And enemies were defined, and permission was given to hate. Oh, there's a lot of love there, if you were a lot alike. But the permission to given to hate even shows up now. I know it's on the fringe, but it's worrisome that it's there. Because someone has said it would be a righteous thing to kill those ministers who would conduct a gay wedding. And I've conducted several. Jesus tells us not to live by fear, but to love our neighbors and to expand our definition of neighbor. In a climate of hatred, lots of courage is required, like that of a poor, vulnerable widow who puts everything she has in the offering plate. The two pennies are symbolic of giving it all. And then Jesus talks of wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and earthquakes and famines. Those kinds of things make us want to just turn the page and get on with it. But he's talking about those things that make us anxious and afraid, those things that bring us grief. I have watched, as have many of you, the devastating fires in California. It's unimaginable. Your whole town destroyed, your neighbors dispersed, some of them dead. Others, you don't know where they are. 
And at Tent City, it gets thrown up at Walmart parking lot, and then you get told you've got to move. You can't stay there. Well, goodness knows, it's near Christmas season. Where do you go? Where do you go with your newfound refugee status? It must feel like there's no tomorrow. The mention of earthquakes is about everything in life is shaking. There's no place to stand and be safe. And famines, it's about not having enough. And Jesus calls this suffering, this fear, this not knowing, this dark night, he calls it the birth pangs. What an image. And I'm pretty sure I'm not qualified to talk about this at all. Observer status doesn't really count. But for me, this is one of the most difficult teachings in the New Testament. An image of suffering and pain that feels as if we're just being torn apart. And yet, the affirmation that new life is being born. It is so hard in painful times to believe that a loving God is still at work. Indeed, it's hard to believe that there's a God at all. And yet here is this assertion of birth pangs. Something, something new, some new life is coming. So, So our call in these times when it's hard to hold on to our faith, even hard to define it, is to live into this future by trusting this Jesus who teaches us that generosity is greater than greed, who teaches us that the love of God and neighbor is what life and faith is about in good times and in bad, and maybe especially in bad times. It's not about my neighbor's status. It's about the openness of my heart. It's not about my selfish seeking. It's about welcoming a whole world. There are terrible fires burning still in California. And the fires of hatred are fanned all across our land. If ever, if ever there was a time to love our neighbors, it is now. And it's risky. And so is birth. It's a call to faith, even when we don't feel it. A call to love, when we don't know what else to do. It's the way of faith. Amen.